Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. Last week, we spoke with historian Yusi Hanemaki on the subject of detente with the Soviet Union, beginning with the presidency of Richard Nixon. We continued this discussion in part two of this podcast episode. Those treaties yeah. and um, the official mm-hmm. charter of detente are often connected. And uh, you write, however, mm-hmm. that while they are related, um, they're, they're two separate tracks of policy. Uh, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, um, I mean, the nuclear missiles, um, in many ways, as you know, they've never, aside from 1945, nuclear bombs have never been used. And in that sense, they're very sort of symbolic of a, in this case, a particularly a, the bilateral relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. They deal with sort of, not abstract issues, but, 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 weapon systems that are there ultimately built and money is expended upon these weapon systems because there's a perception of a threat from the outside that you need to need to counter i don't think i don't certainly think and perhaps there are others who do but i don't think that either the soviets or the americans ever thought that they were building these missile systems for actual offensive war that they would unilaterally one day unleash in order to destroy either the Soviet Union or the United States. I don't think that was behind either of these. I think they were sort of defensive and they were sort of the nuclear arms race itself was a reflection of the perception that we had a threat. We had a threat to our national security and therefore we needed to have lots of of nuclear weapons. Um, And so on the other hand, what the detente process itself also in, in, involved is the sort of, in some ways, more concrete issues that of how each of the, if you think about the United States and the Soviet Union, how they actually behaved in international affairs uh, vis-a-vis issues that may might have affected each other's interests. Um, and so they... Idea of the there was never really a treaty that the sort of codified detente as 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 an international system or, or anything of that sort. But but there was in 1973 they did uh, I'm sorry 1972 there was an, a, a principal agreement about basis for you know U.S. Soviet relationships uh, relations that the two sides agreed upon in which they basically stated. Again, this had no treaty status as such, but that, that they would not challenge, uh, um, openly challenge each other's interests or, or act in ways that would uh, would challenge each other's uh, basic interests. Now, in the end, what, what of course happens is that while that this, the idea of the town essentially means that competition will, that we don't compete um, in and certainly not go to war with each other about certain in, in certain parts of the world, for example, or, uh, or, or and, and so on. But in reality, of course, the competition continued despite the time that you see, for example, in the Middle East, um, Americans and, and and Soviets trying to maximize their influence in the early 1970s, and particularly in the context of the. Uh, uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, 
uh, and the war between Israel and Egypt and, and so on. Both sides trying to maximize their um, their influence in the region. The United States eventually triumphing in that um, in that context um, after after 1973, and the Soviets viewing this as a sort of breach to the um, sort of what uh, accepted rules of behavior uh, of not trying to um, seek unilateral advantage in situations like the October War of 1973 in the Middle East. Um, so in that bilateral relationship, I mean, there, there were two things. That one, On the one hand, yes, you could have treaties and agreements about things like nuclear weapons and so on, but then the actual behavior in particularly in regional conflicts, whether it was in the Middle East or whether it's in Southeast Asia in case of Vietnam, um, the rules of the Tant, if there any were real rules, um, didn't really take hold. Um, but both Americans and the Soviets continued to maximize, to seek maximizing their influence or interests um, in, in those. There was never no negotiated agreement about Soviet-American agreements about Vietnam or about the Middle East or anything like that. And, and how did it ultimately affect the Vietnam, the end of the Vietnam War um, in 1972 and early 1973? Um, my guess is that it, um, it pro I mean, my interpretation is that it probably, um, That it was viewed. I mean, that the, the whole Vietnam project was viewed in 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 different ways, depending where where you were. For the United States, it seems that detente in some ways provided cover for the withdrawal. That while that that you could gradually withdraw from Vietnam because you were simultaneously making gains, diplomatic gains in 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 other areas, such as. Um, I mentioned the Middle East War after after 1973, but also in in terms of negotiated settlements in Europe, in terms of opening to China, um, and so on. So Vietnam became, I think, in this process, Vietnam became came to be seen as being less central to American foreign policy in a way that it had been perhaps seen as the central issue still in the at the at the beginning of the Nixon administration, certainly in 1969. Um, and of course, I mean, behind all this, Americans are withdraw, gradually withdrawing their troops. And the less troops you have in one place or another, obviously, the less media focus there will be on that particular part of the world. So the, domestically, it's it also becoming less significant. Now, if you're in the Soviet Union, you probably view this gradual withdrawal of the United States as a sign of weakness. Um, and certainly... Um, there is, I think, debates within the Soviet Union at this time about, on the one hand, yes, let's pursue the Tant, it's a good thing, uh, we stabilize the relationship. On the other hand, there's pressures to see that, okay, but the Tant means that the Americans are weak, uh, they are withdrawing from Vietnam, so this uh, opens a window of opportunity for us to be more aggressive in certain areas of the world. Uh, not only Vietnam, but then you see some, some of this... Uh, perhaps play out in, in places like in the context of different um, um, 
independence struggles such as the one that takes place in Angola in uh, in, in the mid 1970s and and then later on struggles in in the Horn of Africa in the late 1970s and so on so Soviets become more actively engaged in the so-called third world how do you how do you exactly reconcile how do you reconcile that par paradox you know some critics would say that um, how did, how how could have detente existed um, if you know, you might have had more peaceful relations in Europe, but these smaller, quote-unquote, southern countries, mm -hmm. you know, the Horn of Africa and the Middle East and South America, uh, where proxy wars are being fought. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to sort of recognize that detente also, it, there was not, there's not one detente that's, that's unfolding in, in the 1970s. That the Soviet-American detente is one peculiar aspect of the detente. Of, of international relations that's, that's taking place, and it has—it's not wholesale detente in a sense that it affects the overall relationship necessarily. It doesn't end the Cold War and the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. It's taking place also in a context in which you have um, the decolonization process that begins in the in the aftermath of World War II, that really then concludes in the 1970s. Uh, which means that there are, in many parts of the world, um, there are what you could call power vacuums of, of, of sort, um, into which there is there is a, a an up there opportunities and of course then later on costs. But in some cases there is sort of um, <clears throat> the opportunities to exert influence in in uh, in recently independent. Uh, or still, still in in many cases, uh, places that are seeing post-independence civil wars unfold, such as in Angola and, and elsewhere. Um, there's not a direct intervention on the part of either the United States or the Soviet Union in uh, in many of these uh, these conflicts, um, but certainly the sort of indirect influence in terms of providing um, military economic assistance to different. Uh, parties in civil conflicts, such as in Angola, um, is is a feature. It's a sort of part of the competition, the Cold War competition that's becoming increasingly global. And it's at the same time you do have a different kind of detente process that is not totally controlled by the United States and the Soviet Union, but in many ways driven by uh, regional European actors. Um, um, that starts to unfold already in the 1960s, um, but then gathers steam in the in the 1970s, and in some ways culminates in the in 1975 when you have the uh, the CSC process, you know, the signing of the Helsinki Agreement uh, in in August of 1975. And you mentioned and you mentioned process. several you mentioned mm -hmm. several parts of that accord um, called baskets, yep. and you say mm -hmm. that uh, basket four was perhaps the most important of all. Uh, what, what was Basket 4 and why was mm -hmm. it so important? Uh, well, Basket 4, which usually is, is not mentioned in most of the histories of, uh, of, the, um, of the Helsinki, of course, or of the CSE or European Towns, is, is a very simple one. It basically says that 1975, when the Helsinki Accords are signed, um, that's not the end of the process, but we will have periodic review conferences 
um, to see how the agreements made in 1975, the other, the first three so-called baskets, uh, what sort of pro- progress has been made on on these issues, and basically what that means is that that basket four sort of um, obliges the countries involved in Helsinki in 1975 to meet repeatedly to discuss the same issues, whether it's about uh, east-west security issues in Europe, whether it's about um, economic relations, east-west economic relations in Europe, or whether it's issues like human rights, um, to meet and discuss progress or pitfalls in those areas. And hence, they meet every every so often in, in the, from uh, after 1975. Uh, you have these post post Helsinki conferences, um, CSC conferences, um, and and that keeps the process alive to to to, to a certain extent. Um, and I think one big difference between the, the, the American detente process, the Soviet American detente process, sorry, that focused on um, mainly focused on security issues like nuclear weapons. Um, and then the European detente process, which is on a much broader range of, uh, of of issues, and also on issues that I think are sort of closer to the, if you want, the average person, where it's about human rights or economic issues and so on, um, that the detente process in Europe actually never goes away, it never collapses in, after after 1975, whereas it's sort of Arguably, at least, uh, the Soviet-American detente, um, by the time that the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan in, in December 1979, the, the Soviet-American detente essentially has collapsed as a result of mainly of the two sides' inter, uh, interventions and continued competition in areas outside of Europe. Um, so whether it's in the Middle East, where the Americans were particularly effective in sort of shutting the Soviets out of the peace process that uh, that the so-called shuttle diplomacy of, of Henry Kissinger after, after 1973, or whether it's in Angola, where the Soviets were successful in, in that they supported the winning side in that particular civil war in 75-76. All of these issues become issues of contention that... Uh, do not allow the sort of a fundamental uh, understanding to emerge uh, between the Americans and the Soviets on a, on a bilateral basis, despite some uh, some agreements that are made, um, like like Salt One. But as as you know, Salt Two, while negotiated um, in um, under, under Carter, is is never never enters into force because uh, it's. Actually, Carter withdraws it from from the um, uh, from the ratification by by the by the Congress because of Soviet invasion uh, invasion of Afghanistan in '79. So the I think the short answer would be to see these as two two separate processes um, that are have a different lifespan also and probably a different impact than on a on a sort of broader level, a long-term impact as well. Now, detente wasn't without mm-hmm. its discontents, and the biggest critic was sure. Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, a Democrat from mm-hmm. Washington. 
Why was he much more mm -hmm. hawkish against the Soviet Union? Uh, Kissinger, um, you write that Kissinger was often irritated by Jackson and, and other people mm -hmm. of his position because they were, they were um, more hawkish on the Soviet Union than they mm -hmm. were on Vietnam, some of them, some of them even dovish. Um, why, um, why did they, I guess, why did they become the main opposition to what, um, what the administration was trying to accomplish here? Well, it's probably two answers. One is probably a, a simple domestic political uh, issue that, that you would have, I think, under any administration. Um, uh, for political gain, you will find um, whether it's Nixon or whether it was Johnson or whether it's, it's Obama or whoever comes after you have people uh, opposing their foreign policies and and and, and while it may sound principled it may uh, also be simply a very sort of uh, opportunistic um, way of of playing into the playing to the crowd so to speak and and I think it's uh, it's certainly true that you know Soviet American Given the history of Soviet-American relations, um, what Nixon and Kissinger, what the Nixon administration was trying to do, uh, was in some ways revolutionary in, in a sense that they were saying that actually, you know, we can deal with the Soviets, that you know we can negotiate, we can have uh, mutually beneficial relations with the Soviet Union, despite the fact that for the past few decades, um, the general consensus with the Soviet Union was the, uh, you know, it was the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan will then remind everybody um, in, in the 1980s. And so it, it was an easy hobby horse to, to ride if you wanted to um, gain publicity and, and at the same time, yes, uh, you know, you're a Democrat and, you, and there's a Republican president, so um, so it's an easy uh, easy way. And of course, you know, you could un you could explain the Vietnam, um, the lack of criticism on on on, uh, or I guess a more understanding of the Vietnamese perspective as opposed to the Soviet perspective on on these issues. Uh, to some extent, you could sort of explain it in the same domestic political uh, manner as being part of a partisan uh, partisan game. Um, I think there's, there was also, I mean, the sort of maybe philosophical issues at stake in a, in a sense that um, um, the number of senators, congressmen, and Scoop Jackson included were um, essentially, um, I mean, sincerely believed the Soviet Union was indeed a great menace um, um, to American security, whereas Vietnam was not. Um, the Vietnam was a mistake. Um, uh, it was a, a policy mistake made by successive American administrations, and hence um, it was something that um, that did not U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Vietnam did not deserve their uh, their full support anymore. Certainly in the 1970s, but the Soviet Union still was the um, well. It was the, the subject A, and we should treat it as subject A as being the the only credible threat to to the United States and its interests in the context of the of the 1970s. And hence, when you know when agreements were made, 
um, Scoop Jackson and other took a magnifying lens to, to those agreements with the Soviets and particularly counted numbers, said that, okay, well, you're giving away the American edge in nuclear weapons, for example, was one of the charges. So we are actually negotiating as ourselves into a position of weakness. One of the, um, um, one of the things that you mm -hmm. talk about in the book, uh, one of the main criticisms of detente is being the kind of turning away from the issue of human rights under the under the Soviet Union. Yet you also write that under the Helsinki Act, um, the human rights mm -hmm. provisions of the of the CSCE, uh, and that you might not have had a mm -hmm. a of Havel or a uh, John Paul II in the 1980s if it weren't for if it weren't for the uh, detente and the outgrowth of the of, of this provision within the CSCE. C could you explain that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what I mean, what the CSCE um, process does, the idea, the the notion of of human rights, which basically um, is sort of in in some ways smuggled into the so-called basket three of of the Helsinki Accords uh, that's that's agreed upon in in 1975. Um, what happens afterwards is that the agreement is. Um, it becomes a sort of a manifesto for various dissident movements um, within the within the Soviet bloc, um, and it's possible. I mean, it's possible in part because I think Soviet leaders and leaders of other uh, Soviet bloc countries um, don't really realize the potential significance of of the simple idea of, of human rights and, and, and freedom of expression and, and so on. And hence what they do is they publish, they publish the whole Helsinki Accords um, in, you know, the Soviet press, in the, in the Czech press, in Poland and, and elsewhere. So everybody can see what actually has been agreed upon in, in Helsinki in 1975. And that is then seized upon by many of these dissident movements uh, in in later years. Um, now, there's, it doesn't mean that that you know repression ends suddenly or anything like that. In fact, in fact, in some ways, there's evidence that in the Soviet Union, this uh, the KGB becomes extremely nervous about this, and um, and their surveillance of domestic. Um, dissidence movements increases after 1975. But I think in some ways what what has happened is is that the the simple the, the sort of the small opening of that that comes out of um, out of Helsinki allows then um, the built up resentment uh, against totalitarian rule to become expressed in a slightly more open way. And it also creates the, I mean, there's evidence that it, what it creates is, is all sorts of transnational links between, say, Poland and Czechoslovakia and so on, in which you have various dissident movements uh, starting to cooperate, um, underground for the most part, but starting to cooperate. I think more so in Eastern Europe than in the Soviet Union, but, but still what you see is, is the sort of challenge a grassroots challenge of sorts to uh, to emerge, begin emerging because of um, the simple fact that um, that every time that 
there is a crackdown, then you know a, a response on the part of a dissident will be. But yes, but look what you what the government agreed in 1975 in Helsinki. Uh, they agreed that you know there would be freedom of expression. So so what's the problem? Doesn't always end happily in in these occasions, but I think it it certainly allows um, allows a degree of um, of freedom and criticism to gradually emerge inside the, in many, some parts of Eastern Europe, certainly uh, in the, in the in the late seventies and throughout the nineteen eighties. That probably is plays some role in in terms of ending the Cold War in Europe. Um, uh, and uh, whether or not one can sort of draw the, a direct line from 1975 to 1989 is, uh, is, is that's somewhat suspect. There are probably many other elements that explain the collapse of, of communism in, in Eastern Europe. But this is probably one, one of those elements and one of the, uh, the outcomes of the detente process in Europe that sort of feeds into later later developments. How did ultimately during the Carter and Ford administrations, mm -hmm. detente, the overall policy of detente um, starts to unravel? Uh, could you go into that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, I think in, in terms of, um, well, in, in terms of the Ford administration, I think there's, it's essentially a, a domestic challenge in the United States. Um, that is, Partly related to Watergate, in a sense that Watergate had created this impression that there had been five years of the Nixon slash Kissinger uh, period uh, in which everything had been secretly run. Um, there had been um, all kinds of secret treaties and agreements, and not only this, but then uh, what people like Scoop Jackson that that been mentioned already would have said is that then not only did they act secretly, but they also made bad deals with the Soviets secretly. Um, so, so there is this idea that the Tant is was done by it was enacted diplomatically by crooked men, basically. So Nixon, Kissinger, and, and so on. Uh, and at the same time, what they enacted was essentially they were giving away the keys to the keys to the, the to the vault, to the Soviets, by making bad deals, bad nuclear agreements, by withdrawing uh, Americans from Vietnam without uh, negotiating a good, uh, good agreement, and so on and so forth. So, the town became um, a, a sort of a hobby horse in 1976 election, where Ford initially tried to defend the town, but then decided it was a bad term to be used in public and, and refused to use it anymore. It's in terms of foreign policy issues, that is the, um, one of the main targets of, of both within the Republican Party from people like Reagan, um, who attack, for example, the Helsinki Accords um, as a sort of sellout of, of American ideals, but also then, of course, from, uh, from Carter in, 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 the, in, the actual, in, the, in the actual election, who, who talks about, um, basically links Ford and Nixon as, and, and Kissinger as the sort of three-man show that um, that has enacted bad foreign policy and uh, the town has been the, um, the, the one that um, being a sort of immoral, 
engagement with the immoral enemy, i.e. the i.e. the Soviet Union, um, and that that becomes sort of, sort of the moral argument against dealing with the totalitarian systems on an equal basis. That becomes one of the main criticisms of of the time at home in the United States. Um, and then I think the other side of the coin is that then the Tant did not, in Soviet-American relations, what if you put Europe aside for a moment, in Soviet-American relations, it does not bring about any sort of um, obvious benefits to the United States. Um, um, and it does not, for example, it does not prevent the Soviet Union from supporting um, various liberation struggles in, in places like Angola that are successful. It does not stop the Soviet Union from supporting North Vietnam. Uh, so it doesn't do things that many would have liked to, uh, would have expected perhaps, being to be the positive results of this, uh, of this new kind of uh, a diplomacy that, uh, that Nixon and Kissinger um, um, pushed for. In the in the early 70s, so so you have um, few concrete sort of results. Now, granted, Carter does continue many aspects of the Tant uh, policies, particularly the salt uh, negotiations. They continue, although he tries to push them towards uh, too hard, perhaps in some ways. Um, uh, but but there is a salt two agreement that that is negotiated. And then, of course, that then unravels because of events. Um, um, in, particularly in Afghanistan, but also prior to that, Iran, which which creates new kind of uh, kinds of uh, specters of, of what's going to happen. In, in uh, I mean, what are the so, although the Soviets have very little to do with Iran and the Islamic Revolution there, the the, the idea is that that is possible in part that it may open door open the door to so increasing influence uh, in the in the so-called greater Middle East and so from all of that becomes the rejection already in the in the second half of the Carter administration of the idea that you should and could actually negotiate with the Soviets in the same way um, as um, Nixon had done in the early 1970s you um, you conclude this book with a twist you say even mm -hmm. Reagan, with his strong rhetoric notwithstanding, could not kill detente. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what were the what were the immediate and long term effects mm -hmm. of the detente, detente policy? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple of ways in which um, Reagan. Of course, we think of Reagan, and the first few things that come to mind is you know it's the evil empire rhetoric, it's SDI, the Strategic Defensive Initiative, or the Star Wars, and all of this military build up and, and so on. And that's part of the story. But the other part of the story is that Reagan also um, continued negotiations, um, continued on the idea that you could have, you should actually limit um, the nuclear arms race. And of course, the second Reagan administration sees the, the sort of the flowering of that when there's a change in Soviet leadership. So then you do see. Um, Suddenly, the taunt emerged, and I think, to me, the sort of the idea that there's a second Cold War, new war in the in the early 1980s, is to some extent an exaggeration that um, um, that doesn't really ring true, uh, in a sense that 
um, that certainly not only in in this basic sense of um, of having continued diplomatic um, relations with the Soviets and negotiations and the issues that were put on the agenda in the early 1970s in terms of the Middle East, in terms of um, nuclear arms and so on, they remain on the agenda. There's not that much progress in the early part of the, in the early Reagan years, but that progress will uh, thus follow later in, in the second half of the 1980s. So there's a degree of continuity um, from, indeed, from Nixon to Reagan. If, if you will, in, uh, in in that regard, and I think more significantly, in some ways, is that um, is again, if you return to the European part of the story, is that <clears throat> what the detente process that that emerges in Europe in the 1970s, there's very little that actually either Reagan or the United States or with Brezhnev or other Soviet leaders can do to actually stop that. Uh, in the in the 1980s, so and you know what mentioned earlier about so-called basket four, the continuation of the CSC, for example, that's part of the story of uh, of uh, of an evolution within Europe. And Europe, after all, had been the heart, at the heart of the Cold War tensions for um, in 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 the first few decades of uh, first few post-war decades. So. That process, that sort of east-west transformation of the, of the east-west relationships in Europe, that continues despite uh, whatever the domestic rhetoric in the United States uh, about evil empires and 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 whatnot may be uh, under the in, in the early 1980s, and despite events in Afghanistan uh, or even you know events in the Horn of Africa and elsewhere. Um, so that's one, and of course, I mean the the, the last point I guess to, to be made is that that the side product of of all of this, um, and which we talked about earlier, the opening to China, of course, that is something that uh, that by the time Reagan becomes president, there's no turning away. Uh, from the path that was chosen in the early 1970s of essentially initially to just have a diplomatic relationship with China, but then to, in essence, help China open to the world. Um, and I think that probably is not a direct consequence of, of I, I mean, the, the direct plan, certainly in the in, in the early Nixon years to, to do that. But but that is one of the gradual consequences that um, that the detente process that does, does bring about. Thank you, Professor Hanemaki, for your time. Thank you very much. It's uh, nice talking to you.